there is this research that needs to be done when you're thinking about how and where you want to operate a business. Not only are we curating the best a city has to offer, but we're creating our own original content around it. The weird thing about entrepreneurship is people think that to be an entrepreneur, you sort of have to like jump up on the table, kick a stapler across the room, and then say, I quit. I think that most people that start a small business don't want to be a small business forever. I know I don't. I wish more people would just ask, like, why can't I do stuff well, good morning and welcome to Your Business Matters. I'm your host, Mark Hager. We have kind of a special show today. Um, over the number of years I've been doing this program, and if you're a regular listener, you might know that uh, Your Business Matters started as a radio program, radio talk show on Saturday mornings back in 2008. So we've been on the air for quite a while. Uh, the show has taken different iterations in that time frame, but from the early days uh, of doing interviews with small business owners and and people who support small business on the radio. And back in 2010, I had an opportunity to interview Bill Rasmussen. Um, that name may or may not be familiar to you. It might help uh, if you knew that he was the founder of the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network, uh, better known today as ESPN. And Bill was kind enough to sit in studio and uh, tell great stories about his experiences in starting ESPN, some of the difficulties they had. Uh, and he also offered some advice for small business people and entrepreneurs. And this uh, has been kind of buried in the archives. I think it played once on the station uh, when we were on the radio. And I decided that it would be kind of a fun thing. I get lots of questions. People often ask me about my favorite interviews. And it's really hard to pin down um, because everybody has a great story. And I think the stories that we share on Your Business Matters are reflective of the vast variety of experiences that people have had in getting into business, the diversity of businesses that people are involved in. So, I mean, that's the goal anyway. So I, I hope we're able to do that. Um, but certainly, Bill was one of my favorite interviews. Um, I took the tapes from 2010 and uh, remixed them a little bit. And, I, and Please forgive me for the imperfections. There are many within this uh, interview, but you'll hear some awkward cuts. Um, you might hear some extra noises, some pops and cracks, and maybe even some you know foreign uh, voices that, that might have snuck on uh, to the tapes because we were doing it again live in studio. Uh, please forgive me, but I, th I think it's well worth it just because of the message that Bill shared. His story is wonderful, and uh, I, I just really hope you enjoy it. And so, no further ado, uh, let me get back to the 2010 interview with Bill Rasmussen from ESPN. Bill, thank you so much for being here with us today on Your Business Matters. Very grateful for you to take the time um, and uh, come and share with us some of your stories. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's uh, been a while since I've been back in Fort Wayne specifically, but even in Indiana. And, you know, I went to school here many years ago, so it's always fun to come back to Indiana. Uh, well, I'm, uh, as you might expect, I'm asked that question frequently, and it all started when I got fired from my job with the Hartford Whalers. The, uh, the Whalers had an unsuccessful season in the 1977-78 uh, season. Didn't make the playoffs for the first time in their history, and so they, what all good sports teams do when they have a bad season, they have, they grouse a little bit and then start firing people. And the Whalers decided it would be everybody who never skated a single stride. We were all out the door. Right. PR man, communications, ticket manager, everybody fired them all, and I was one of them. And as luck would have it, that was Memorial Day weekend, 1978, and a gentleman who was doing feature. 
shows for cable television in Connecticut had scheduled me for that first week in June to meet with him and tape a show to talk about the season just gone by and what were the changes going to be and what the next season would look like. Well, I got a call from Colleen Howe, who uh, worked with the Whalers. Uh, Cordy Howe was playing with them at the time. And she said on Memorial Day weekend, she called me from the airport and said, I wish I could have done this in person, but basically Howard doesn't want you back, neither do we, and we're going to, you know, if you're fired, you'll get a check for two weeks, and sorry, I have to catch a plane. It was a really very professional, you know, HR-type thing. <laughs> but uh, So when I got that call, I called a young fellow who was planning to tape the show, and said, you probably don't want to talk to me about the Whalers because this just happened. And he said, I have to talk to you about something because I don't have anybody else to talk to. <laughs> so I went down. He said, let's see, I've done hot air balloons. I can't call him. I've done minor league baseball. I can't call those guys. Um, so he said, come on down. And I went down and we, uh, he had an office in the United Cable Television Building in Plainville, Connecticut. We sat around talking about different things. My son, Scott, was with me and we were just kind of brainstorming. Well, he said, um, you know, maybe we can do something here in the state and what what would you think of in Connecticut I mean there is no NFL team or Major League Baseball team so we said well you can do UConn you know UConn had a pretty good basketball program even back then sure so we started talking about that and uh, said well yeah let's let's explore that a little bit first thing we did was call the local telco company to find out about how we could put together a network that could just take our picture and feed it off to the cable systems of Connecticut and the fellow said, well, uh, send me the details and, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, we'll take a look at it and we'll give you some idea. And I said, well, how long is this going to take? You know, and he said, well, a, a typical evaluation takes us about 18 months. I'm thinking I got fired last week and he's telling me 18 months. <laughs> That's not going to work too well. You're interested in a paycheck. I'm interested. Point, yeah, right? I've got kids. One is two in college and one in high school. And I'm saying it's got to be a little faster than 18 months. Well, that led us to talking to the uh, proprietor, the cable system, United Cable, where the office was located. And uh, he said, you know, there's, I don't know much about it, he said, but we've been told, we meaning the cable industry, that something big is on the horizon, something's coming, and it's called satellite communications. I said, what's that mean? And I couldn't even spell satellite. You know, I, I still have trouble. Is it one L and two T's or one T and two L? You know, it's that kind of thing. So... <laughs> So he said, uh, so he said uh, why don't we, get the, uh, why don't we get, quote, get the guys together? Now, you have to understand what that means. In Connecticut in 1978, there were only 10 cable franchises. Maybe to this day, that's all there are. Five of them weren't even active. So they had 10 owners, but only five of them working, and the biggest one had 9,500 subscribers. So we weren't dealing with a mass market by any means. Right. But he said, let me get the guys in. And so they all came in. He said, I'll host a meeting. And, you know, he had coffee and everything. And they all came in. And he said, Bill wants to do this around Connecticut and so on. But we know this satellite's coming. What have you guys heard about the satellite? One guy said, well, I hear you could buy all of New England for something. Another guy said, no, 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 no. It's everything east of the Mississippi for something. No, no, you can buy. the." And it became clear by the time we got to the third guy. Nobody had a clue. <laughs> no idea whatsoever. And finally, uh, they all admitted none of them really knew. I, you know, we probably got 12 answers from 10 people. That's, nobody knew. So our host said, I have an idea. I have a phone number for RCA Americom in New York. Why don't you just give them a call and ask them? It's their satellite. They ought to know. Sure. So here I am. I've 
I'm, first of all, I'm a little guy from the south side of Chicago who's just been fired from my job. I have no income. And I'm going to pick up the phone and call RCA and say, hey, I want to talk to you about this satellite stuff. Why not? Why not? Are they going to answer? What the, what can, what's the worst that happened? They're going to hang up. So I called, and a fellow by the name of Al Perinello was the salesman handling who, I don't know whether he just happened to answer the phone, but any, he was the guy I talked to. I explained what I had in mind, what I was doing, and he said, where are you located? I told him. He said, what are you doing tomorrow morning? I'll be there. I mean, I had to look at the phone. <laughs> wow, what magic words did I say that's got him coming? So he came up, and um, we sat in the, uh, the conference room. And he said, here's, what, here's the tariffs. And he had all these charts and books and laid them all out. And, you know, and you do this. And you can buy five hours a night. It's $1,250. You can buy two hours weekday afternoons for this. You can buy weekend. You know, I mean, right. you know how rate cards look. They're just like radio stations and TV stations. Yeah. And he said, and there's another one that we have. He said, nobody's even ever talked about it. And we've taken it out of the, out of the uh, book. And we don't even offer it anymore. But I might as well tell you about it. It's uh, 24 hours a day. Five-year contract for thirty-four thousand one hundred and sixty-seven dollars a month. I remember that number. It's like right across my <laughs> forehead. And so my son said, "That can't be right." He said, "You just told us it's five hours a night for twelve hundred and fifty dollars. What you now have said is it's twenty-four hours, a, day, a full day right. for eleven $1 hundred and forty-three dollars." Right. He said, "How can we get twenty-four hours? You know, and so on." He's, he's always been quick with numbers, and uh, so he's still in the numbers business. But sure. back then, he said, hmm. And so these Al uh, Paranello salesman said, well, if you say so. I mean, he didn't, you know, he hadn't even figured that out. It was $34,000. <laughs> yeah, so here we are, and uh, he said, thank you very much. And we said, you know, we'll be in touch. He walked out the door. We said, are you kidding me? He can't be right. That can't right, be right. right. That's, that's too good to be true. And at that time, they had six Unsold transponders, six, wow. flying around. Nobody had any anything to put on them. Nobody was even interested in them. Right. So we called back. The, I mean, our, our biggest discussion was, should we take one, two, or three? Of course, we had no money to take any. <laughs> so uh, we said one, two, or three. We said, boy, even one's a stretch. At this point, we had no money. We had started the company with a $9,000 credit card advance, so $34,000 a month was a little, uh, a little stiff. All right. And, Bill, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but can you talk to us about the timeline here? How, how Was this weeks, months? How long were we talking about in this? Fired on Memorial Day weekend. Had the meeting with the cable industry in late June. Had this idea about Connecticut basketball, so we called a press conference to say we we're going to do all of this sports all day long in Connecticut at the end of June and called RCA around the 1st of July. Um, and he came up that early part of July. We incorporated the company actually on July 14th, 1978. And we got word from RCA that, the, that the, we were indeed granted use of that satellite in early August. And so <clears throat> an interesting aside to that, you might wonder how did we pay for that satellite right. without any money? We didn't have to. We really didn't have to. <clears throat> so we asked them, how do we pay for it? They said, well, we've never sold one of these. Never even, nobody's even asked. <laughs> so they came, they came up with a plan. They said, here's the deal. No money until you start to use. The clock doesn't even start running until your first use. Right. We'll give you 90 days from your first use 
and send you an invoice that is then due in 30 days, which would be 120 days. So we wanted to do a we wanted to do a game, uh, UConn game, uh, basketball Friday night and uh, soccer Saturday morning to demonstrate what the idea of ESPN was about. Once we come to campus, we can do all of these things. All right. We said, wow, November's just around the corner. We're not going to have any. We counted our months. You know, <clears throat> wonder if we can delay that a little bit. We knew that Madison Square Garden Sports, which is today USA USA Network. Okay. Had a transponder. We checked to see that if they had anything scheduled. They didn't because they were one of those partial users. They used it maybe 120 hours a year or something. Okay. So, so we called them. Nope, we're not using it. And, of course, any money that they could get was found money. So they leased us their transponder, $100 for the Friday night game and $100 for the Saturday morning game, $200. <laughs> and that allowed us to push all the way back to January before we would have to start. Because right. by the time we got to January, we were... We wanted to show some live basketball. We wanted to really see what was happening. So in January, we actually did a uh, Rutgers at UConn game for anybody who wanted it. They could take it just to look in, see it free, and so on. But we also started that clock running. Right. So now it's January 9th, I think, was the date. So we had February, March, April. They were going to send us a bill. We had to have money by May or right. we're done. <laughs> we signed the uh, – we didn't sign, but we agreed with Getty Oil – for a 10 plus million dollar advance on Valentine's Day, wow. 1979. So we closed the deal before the first payment was due. So in effect, we started, got the satellite, used the satellite, and never paid a penny for the satellite. We didn't even know about it though. We were just, we got $9,000 and I went to my family and borrowed some money. And then we got a little bit more money from a, an investment banker who agreed to help us uh, find a buyer. And, and the interesting thing about that idea, to me, it was the smartest thing in the world to do. It was, how can anybody say no? And everybody said no. <laughs> we, we went to seven well-heeled and well-known companies that invested in these kinds of things before we got to Getty Oil. And they're not their non-oil division, their diversified division. And the seven people basically said the idea won't work, cable television won't work, it's never going to happen. All right. I suspect several of them are shaking their head today. Well, you would think so. Well, of course, starting a television network is a daunting task for most people. But can you talk to us about some of the specific challenges that you had to deal with? The cable industry was not very sophisticated in those days. And all they wanted to do was basically it was a signal enhancement. They wanted to improve the signal for those that would get poor reception from over-the-air television. So we were trying to come and say, we're going to do all these wonderful things. We're going to do these games, and we're going to give you all of this stuff. And we knew that, I mean, there were a lot of ways, a lot of people available, production companies. I, Because I'd been in the television business for 10 years, uh, live television at an NBC station, I just knew those things. Um, but we, our, we had several things facing us. One was programming. If you think about it, to do 24 hours a day is 8,760 hours of programming. Mm -hmm. ABC, NBC, and CBS, up at that up until that time, had been doing combined roughly 1,300 hours of programming a year. It was an interesting aside. As we became more and more a part of the scene, their rebuttal to watching us was, well, all of our programming is live and only half of theirs is. 
Now think about that. All of their 1,300 hours is live, and only half of our 8,760 is live. Right. Let me see. Four times 13. <laughs> so uh, that was that was an interesting uh, problem. But we uh, we really had the the problems of getting financing, programming, and a distribution system. We got the satellite that took care of the distribution. We made a deal with the NCA that took care of that. Getty Oil signed on. We, we got the word that Getty Oil was signing on on uh, Valentine's Day of 1979 while at the NCAA office in Kansas City, and they were agreeing the same day. So in one, one you know, 30 or 40-minute period, we got commitment for financing and programming. That's a pretty big day. That's a pretty big day. And we had already had the, uh, the transponder in place. Right. When you had those three things in place, going to the cable systems was a pretty easy sell. It was difficult at the first because they didn't want to sell local advertising. I remember one gentleman looking at me and saying, what do you mean local sales? I'll have to go hire a salesman. Well, let me see. If he sells $1,000 and you pay him 10 it doesn't make any difference. 10 or 15%, there's something left for you. They still wouldn't do it. It took him a while. Uh, local cable advertising was not a big factor the first couple of years we were on the air. We kept giving them availabilities to insert advertising. They wouldn't do it. And then finally the light went on, and today it's a multi-billion dollar industry right. at the sure. local. So once we had all of those three things in place, it was a run for the roses. We had to hire people, and we hired the former president. Well, he wasn't the former president. He became the former president when we made him an offer of NBC Sports. Chet Simmons had been with NBC for 15 years, and he came over in July. And between July of 1979 and September, he put together a team of, we had 80 people when we went out in the air. So we had a, a building that he said wouldn't work. We had a control room that was not finished. We had a muddy parking lot because it rained right around then, and we had, hadn't put down a blacktop yet. But we had committed to go on the air September 7th, and 80 people strong, we took on the world. And wow. <laughs> I'll give you an example of it. We, uh, we, I, I mentioned to you that we visited with this fellow that wanted to do a TV after the, about the whalers. We were sitting in that building, and we had gone now because we were going in there every day. Uh, he had a little 8 by 10 office, really little office. I mean, that's really tiny, barely right. big enough for the desk and turn around. <laughs> to They let us uh, use the space. They had um, some uh, equipment racks in a bigger room, but they had some space left over, so we put three desks in there. And the day that RCA uh, announced, confirmed who was going to get all of those five transponders was September 28th, 1978. And within 90 minutes, the phone rang and a guy, some voice, we don't know who it was, said, you don't know who I am, but I can make all of you very wealthy. I want transponder. Our method of intercom was, since we had three desks, we all looked around and put our hand over the mouthpiece, and all three of us, just as we're all sitting here, we all three shook our head no, and I went back on the line and said, we appreciate your interest, but the answer's no. Don't know to this day who he was. Huh. That was our board of directors. That's how decisions were made, that fast. <laughs> our decision-making process was, um, you can't even use the word fast track. It was uh, on August 16th, we already had the transponder and we were, we were getting ready to, you know, we wanted to go get the financing and all of those things. But my daughter's birthday is August 16th. That's why I remember it so well. 
we were driving from New Jersey, from Connecticut to New Jersey. She was working down there at a shore job for the summer. And uh, we got stuck in a traffic jam in uh, Connecticut right outside Waterbury. And we started talking, you know, what do we put on this transponder? We've got the transport. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he said, I don't know, play football all day for all I care. Well, that triggered a discussion that lasted from that point down and all the way back over eight hours. We laid out the entire, the way ESPN went on the air, we laid out the the trucks we're going to go to visiting, you know, to different campuses. We're going to hire two reasonably experienced sportscasters, plus we'll steal somebody from the net, from the network. We didn't have any names for any of these things. Yeah. And everybody else is going to be a rookie. We're just going to bring them because we don't have to pay them much money. That's why, <laughs> that's why they were going to be a rookie. And, and all of that, while we were having that conversation, that's when the idea of Sports Center, Sports Central came up about and let's do a half-hour show, and we'll do it opposite the New York Evening News, the three newscasts. They had 93% of the audience at six, from 6.30 to 7, the three networks at that time. And here we were saying, we're going to put a half-hour show opposite them. Everybody said, you're crazy. Well, today, now, 100 million people a month watch SportsCenter. Yeah. And wow. the big three networks have gone from 93% to teens. Yeah. had a lot of allies, remember, there, because the cable industry needed uh, satellite dishes. Who makes satellite dishes? Well, that guy has a vested interest in what we were doing. Sure. Because if we can become popular enough, and he, people are asking them for dishes, the uh, cable subscription model of, I think at the start, it was probably only 6 or 7 or $8 a month. But they suddenly became aware of, let's see, if we add something extra, we can add 20 cents a subscriber, perhaps, or we can add this or that. So that started to build. Um, the biggest cable system in Connecticut in 1978 was 9,500 subscribers. By the end of 1979, the first part of uh, 1980, the biggest system in the country was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it was 165,000 subscribers. It had gone that rapidly. Wow. And now part of that is because, if you recall, we only had 12 channels on our TVs. Right. That was all there was. Yeah. And we were all competing for space because of the must-carry rule, ABC, NBC, CBS, usually took up four, five, or six, you know, the overlapping signals. Right. So we were competing for that extra little space with everybody that wanted to put something on. Yeah. It was Early on, it was pretty clear that HBO movies, CNN, and these were all theoretical at the time. Right, right. HBO was up for a few hours, but they were going to go 24 hours. CNN with Ted Turner and us was pretty evident we were going to be included in virtually all of the cable bids. But there were people who argued with us who didn't want to take it. Sure. So I guess getting fired really was the best thing that ever happened to you. You, you said that kind of with tongue-in-cheek, the best thing that ever happened to you. But, but it is true. You know, it's amazing when you really have to start to do something. We discover what we have inside of us, and, and why not? And why not? You know, sometimes you might want to try something. Well, you're a little too comfortable. When all of a sudden you're not very comfortable, you go out and try it. That's right. big problem that a lot of people have is they become very angry, they become all kinds of bad things. But I look at it the other way, and uh, we got a phone call from um, Texaco. Texaco had acquired Getty Oil at the end of 1983, the beginning of 1984. They called all the shareholders uh, and said, we're gonna sell 
all the Getty Oil non-oil pro, uh, properties. Getty Oil had 49 non-oil properties, ESPN, an insurance company, a dude ranch. They had a whole bunch of things. <laughs> <laughs> and they invited us to White Plains and said, come on up and we'll explain what we're doing. We walked in. He did just that. He said, we're going to sell it. When we sell it, we'll either send you a check every quarter for the rest of your life or we'll write, run big check and hand it to you. Wow. What do you prefer? We all put our hand in the air and said, we'll take the money. He said, thank you very much. Got up and walked out of the room. We had flown in. Ed Egan had flown in from Florida, people, you know, from all over. Meeting lasted 90 seconds. <laughs> and then two months later in June, they called back and said, come on in. We're ready to close. And after a false start one day, we went back a week later. And uh, their lawyer-in-chief looked around at, I don't seem like there were dozens of lawyers in the room. And he not check, 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 check. Everybody was happy. He said, Jack, go get the checks. <laughs> and he dealt them out like cards. <laughs> there you are. See you later. That was the end of our involvement. That was the end of everybody's involvement with ESPN. It ended Getty's involvement. It ended all of us. But I, I, I recognize that that has to happen with a new business. I don't know, any, I don't know anything about anything. Uh, certainly not about how do you launch a television satellite signal from there and how do you modulate the signal and how do you do I don't know anything about that I barely know the words <laughs> so uh, you expect kinds of things and I look back at ESPN quite differently than people ask me that question it's kind of like watching your kids grow up wouldn't you be proud to watch your kids grow up to be successful in business to be a successful doctor or lawyer or my daughter is a nurse I think that she's incredibly successful Right. Scott, my oldest son, is doing his, he's still an entrepreneur. He started his new business and he has brought it to, he's one of the preeminent pollsters in the country. So, right. uh, and that's the way I look at ESPN. It's, I'm, I'm still their biggest fan. No, the recruiting was really kind of interesting. Uh, we did go hire George Grant and um, Lou Palmer. And then we went out and pirated Jim Simpson from NBC. He had been a long time NBC announcer and we needed a big name. But we never, ever advertised for another sportscaster. Three weeks before, we had been advertising, and the trade media had been talking about us 24-hour sure. sports. Sure. Three weeks before we went on the air, we had 2,500 audition tapes. Yeah. Now, what do you do with 2,500 tapes? Everybody's saying, what do you do with 2,500 tapes? And the same Scotty Connell had this idea, and he said, invite them all. There you go. Instead of tell them all if they want to, you know, we're not doing this on the tape. You want to do this? Come to Bristol, Connecticut. Well, that wiped out half to three quarters of them right there. Some did come up. And when they actually sat down to have to do, they thought they were going to get training. And we're going to, Scotty said, nope, write a, write a show. We'll put you on the air at 2 o'clock in the morning. Write a show. We'll put you on the air at 1130. And and that wiped out a lot of people, you know, people who, oh, I can do that. Right. You know, you know right. I can. It's so easy. I can sit and be on the radio. I can do television. I can do. Well, do it. Right. Oops. They gulped. <laughs> and I remember one really funny incident. One guy gritted his teeth and you could see the sweat running down as he was typing. And he went in and he did deliver the show at two in the morning when probably we have a bigger crowd here than ever right. saw him probably. But. He got up, he finished, he took off his microphone, set it down in, in front of him, walked out the studio, walked out the front door, never saw him again. <laughs> never said a word to anybody. He was so terrified. Oh, he went out. But then, but, but he, he got through it. But then there were survivors. Chris Berman, he knew from day one he could do this. 
sir. And uh, he was doing some part-time sports on a local TV station, so he, this was a piece of cake for him. Bob Lee was doing a cable sports show in uh, East Orange, New Jersey, and those kinds of... So there were some that had a little experience, and they, they survived. And the intriguing thing to me, Chris Berman, to this minute, lives in the same house he lived in. Is that right? Married his childhood sweetheart, raised his kids. They went off to Brown, just the same as he had done, okay. and, and he still lives in the same place. Wow. Were you ever scared during this process? Well, I, I think just before we finally got the go-ahead from Getty Oil, we had a, a seminal moment, as they say, when we were standing on Wilshire Boulevard after having a meeting, and it was now 2.45 in the morning because we never slept because we were worried about funding it, and our accountant back in Connecticut, it was 5.45 his time payday, and we had no money in the bank. And we had to get the payroll or we would have been out of business that day. And Getty Oil had decided to put the division off. And they finally said they would advance some money as we got in. But you have to remember now, that's 9 o'clock California time. It's And so he finally said, oh, I suppose so. I'll advance the money. And then he turned to our investment banker and he said, "Uh, you guys are on the East Coast. Why don't you just wire them the money? Like, without regard for whether or not they had the money. Getty Oil had gazillions. And the investment banker was seven small guys. And they pooled their money and they paid our payroll that day. And that was the lowest point we had that one day. And from there on, it was all uphill. And eventually it ended up, Getty put in $146 million before it was sold. That was over. Over a period of time, they started, uh, their first commitment was a little over $10 million, in, uh, and that started in March of 1979 as we were going forward, and uh, ended probably in March of 1984, so it was about a five-year period. And to start, and then we kept, we just absolutely have to have this, and they'd spend some more. We have to do this, and we have to hire somebody, and, you know, it kept building. Eventually, they had, and when we closed with uh, Texaco, when the company was sold, it was $146 million was settled that day. And the question we always ask here on Your Business Matter, uh, Bill, is what advice do you have for somebody that might be starting a business or considering starting a business? Well, the one thing, and I get asked that question a lot, as you might expect, and the, the one thing is that, uh, that I feel is we have to, you have to start with a mindset that there is nothing, absolutely nothing can stop you doing what you want to do if you're really committed to it. And you can always find the answer to make it happen, but if, if you're not committed to doing it, why should anybody else be committed to loaning your money, buying your service, whatever it might be? And... Uh, I, other thing is, when I think about it, I didn't know anything about any of the facts at all. We kidded about spelling satellite. Right. I didn't know any of those, but somebody knows them. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't, I mean, we, we, without knowing anything, we said, we're going to buy this piece of land. We're going to put the satellites here. We're going to build this, and we're going to do... I don't know how to do... I'm not an architect. I don't do any of those things. The uh, people from Scientific Atlanta came up. And said, wow, who picked this spot? I thought, oh, man, I'm in big trouble now. He said, this is the absolute perfect spot. We have some hills to the left shielding the signal. You just clear the top of the mountain, and your signal is visible on the satellite. I mean, the trans, uh, satellite over Hawaii, over the equator. I didn't know that. We guessed. It worked. So there, you have to guess. But if it hadn't worked, we would have asked him, well, where do you want to put it? And we could have worked that out. But I always ask questions, and I never take no for an answer. When people say you can't do it, you just yeah. have to say you can do it. 
I uh, and, and I think there is part of that is in the makeup of the individual. If you are absolutely confident that you can make really just about anything work or accept the fact that it's not going to work and move on to the next one. And uh, I think those are the two things that that have um, helped over time. And uh, we talk about that a lot and why did it happen and that that automobile ride the day that we invented we had no hesitation we had no doubt that that what we were putting together was going to happen and it was going to work uh when people start saying things like who's going to watch television sports 24 hours a day we knew they didn't get it because we didn't expect them to watch all 24 hours you do have to eat and sleep (laughs) but we knew that day and and no matter how many people told us no no matter how many people said it's not going to work our assumption was either we haven't explained it properly or they just don't understand but we weren't going to take no for an answer and we never did and and i do that to this day I was born in the long ago depression and grew up and you know went through all of those wars and in the Air Force at the end of the Korean War and all of that kind of stuff and just just lived and just sure. became very confident and our country allows us to do that this is just the best there is this is the absolute best environment to do what we do because it allows us to try and it allows us to say no and it allows us to go out and learn things and there you have it uh, fitting in to a wonderful interview. Uh, I appreciated everything that Bill talked about. Uh, he took a few minutes there at the end to just uh, show his appreciation for the good fortune in his life, uh, for living in a country that provides the kind of opportunity that he was able to capitalize on and, and uh, make his fortune and grow his business like uh, many of us aspire to. It was, again, just a wonderful interview. Uh, such a wonderful, humble man, and I. Uh, it was one of those once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, and I'm just so grateful that I had the opportunity to not only to interview him, but just to meet him and sit and chat with him. And it was one of those interviews that I wish we would had the opportunity just to record right through every commercial. You know, the the ten minutes of prep work before as we were setting up the studio, and then you know the lingering goodbye where he shared a couple other little anecdotes. Uh, all of them were just fascinating and a lot of fun. So Bill Rasmussen from ESPN, uh, thanks again for being here, and, and thank all of you for tuning in to Your Business Matters.